0: Information is valuable. Valuable. If you don't believe me, think about if you were buying a house or perhaps you were with some measure of risk taking a new job. How willing, how much would you be willing to pay for information that would give you insight that could change or inform your decision like that the house has serious issues with the foundation that you can't see or, or maybe that that new job is in a company that is in financial disarray or positively that that company is on the ground floor of absolute financial success. Information is valuable because it gives us insight that we might not necessarily have. You do this, and even in relationships, some of you are interested in a girl or a boy. And what do you want? You want information. You might want to know what they think of you. You might want to know more about them from others who, who know them. What do they like? The whole idea of of gathering information is is literally what drives intelligence agencies. They want to know more about them than they know about us. What if you had access to peer behind the, the curtain of the world to some of the biggest and most important information in the universe? such as plans about the biggest stuff going on in the world. I would guess you would take advantage of that. That information would affect your life in a massive way. That's what we're going to consider this morning. But this is more than information from human sources. This is revelation from God. Turn to John 17. John 17, New Testament, fourth book. 17 is the big number. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 5, the small numbers, in a chapter that has been widely known or referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And yet, I don't want you to forget, even as we read and work through this prayer, is death, his resurrection, his ascension, all necessary to qualify Jesus to be the great high priest who passed through the heavens forever to save his people to the uttermost. Jesus prays on behalf of his people in John 17, and yet he is not yet the great high priest of God in heaven. But he's preparing for it, and he's preparing to sacrifice himself for his disciples. As we work through this prayer, I I hope you see what we're learning is mind-blowing information. Revelation about the plans and the purposes of the Father and the Son from before the whole world began to this present day and even long before this, long after this world is over. When we come to this chapter, we aren't coming to the very first time Jesus has prayed to the Father. He's done this several times in John's Gospel, John 11, Lazarus' tomb. In response to his praying to the Father publicly, God, through Jesus, raised Lazarus from the dead. He did it again in John 12, 27 and 28. And in response to his prayer, the Father audibly attested to who Jesus is by declaring, I have glorified it. Speaking of Jesus, his name, I will glorify it again. And here, what is special about this prayer is, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. And be certain that when the Son prays to the Father, the Father answers. Let's read these first five verses together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here's the main point of, of this text The Father is glorified as Jesus is glorified. Father is glorified as Jesus is glorified by doing eternal good to his people, by doing eternal good to his people. We'll begin by seeing first the son's glory, the son's glory. That's our first point. John begins here by saying this was after he had spoken these words. Which words? Well, all that he had just taught in the last four chapters that we looked at back in May and June and and part of July. How do we have this prayer? It seems that Jesus purposely prayed this prayer out loud for his disciples to hear. And the Spirit brought it to remembrance as this gospel was written. I think more than our wonder that we have the privilege of seeing this prayer in Scripture is that we are allowed to overhear this prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. There is a sense in which we have no business being here, hearing this. I mean, I assume some of you have at times wanted to be in the room where the big stuff happens. You just want to be a fly on the wall to hear what's being discussed, something that will impact the world or or history, just to hear the conversation. This is such a moment, and it makes every conversation among any rulers or high-ranking official pale in comparison what jesus is praying here will impact eternity it will change the course of of history it will change the course of countless lives to overhear this is to know what the universe is about and the spirit has so worked to ensure that we have the privilege to know it. What we have here is a, a treasure that's greater than any treasure, any archaeological find. We know what the son to whom the father gives anything he asks, ask of the father before he dies. He prays for himself to begin this prayer. And what does Jesus have in view here? Death and glory. Death and glory. Father, the hour has come. Not future. It's here. The hour is his crucifixion. The hour is the time when he offers up himself through an atoning death to save guilty sinners. And notice, he's not surprised by the hour. It is the moment to which his life has been heading. It is the hour for which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have planned eternally. eternally. There's going to be many events in the unfolding hours. All of them lead to this hour. Friends, even though it's ignored and rejected by the world, the cross of Jesus Christ was God's plan for all eternity. There is in a very real sense the reality that Jesus was a victim of unjust wickedness on the cross, and yet he also reigned over every moment and ruler and person who conspired to put him there. He came into this world for this hour to die on the cross. And notice that with the hour of his sacrificial death having come, Jesus is not fatalistic. He's not just to resign to if God wills, inshallah. No, he prays. This sovereignly destined moment does not lead him to being passive, but active. He prays again and again in scripture, God's people confident in God's sovereign rule Over everything leads them to prayer. So, Jesus here, motivated by, not deterred, certainly not passive, because of the sovereign plan of God. For you, this means that the knowledge of what God promises and guarantees in the future is the ground for your confidence in prayer. Your knowledge of that. Gives you confidence to pray. Jesus is confident the hour has come, so he prays. So just like the coming cross for Jesus, for the Christian, there are fixed realities you know are coming. They're certain. God promises your sanctification. You will be made more like Jesus, which means you're not passive. You don't let go and and let God. You pray. You pursue holiness. You take advantage of the means of grace, like the gathering, to grow in Christ. Jesus promises he will build his church. You pray for that. He promises. He doesn't wish. He promises there will be a multitude around his throne in glory. We pray together and individually for the Lord to do it. God's sovereign plan, our grounds for confidence to pray in light of it. And what does Jesus pray for to the Father? He prays for glory, His glory. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glory that comes by going through the hour. Now, that's not what we would expect or would have written into the story. Death on the cross was the most shameful, horrific death the Romans carried out. Other civilizations actually crucified, but it's been said that the Romans perfected it. It was reserved for slaves, for disgraced soldiers. Yes, for some Christians and for foreigners, it was very rare that a Roman citizen was ever crucified. And yet it's through this hour, death on a cross, Jesus prays to the Father, glorify the Son. The Son might glorify you. So we are to see that in the cross, there is a particular way in which we see the glory of the Father. And the sign. One of the, the great questions of any religion or philosophy is the problem of evil. If God cannot and will not do evil, where does evil come from? I don't have the answer. I would just tell you this is one of those secret things that belongs to the Lord that God has chosen not to fully reveal to us. We must be content to trust Him in. It does not mean, though, that there are not greater purposes in which God has created a world in which real sin and real evil exist. And it's at the cross, especially, that we are taken to heights, to mountaintop peaks, to see God's glory that we would not have otherwise seen. God does not do evil. He cannot do evil and yet unless we live in a world in which sin and evil really do exist there are views of the glory of god we would not see that the cross is revealing to us the the depths of god's goodness and salvation and judgment in otherwise unseeable ways that redound to his glory as we look and stare at what god does in christ on the cross at the heart of this prayer and at the heart of the whole gospel of Christianity is glory. The glory that the Father and the Son will receive and display in the cross. And what do we learn about the glory of God in the cross? We learn that the God who is the God of the Bible puts glory on display, not by taking from us, but by giving First, we must see that the son asking to be glorified in this way is a blasphemous request if he is not, in fact, God. Jesus knew his Old Testament. He fulfills all of the Old Testament's hopes and promises. He knew texts like Isaiah 42, 8, which reads, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Isaiah forty eight eleven. God declares, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. My glory, I will not give to another. If he is not God, he cannot ask the Father for this. You will never find another prophet in all of the scriptures praying in this way. They pray for God to bring himself glory. They pray for God to act for his glory. The Son in the incarnate state Praise for his glory that is hidden to be seen. But it cannot be seen apart from the cross. How different this is from human glory. When a king, head of state, goes to another country, showered with glory from all of those who receive them, When a player competes in sport and football and they defeat the other team, if it's at home, they're showered with glory from their fans. It's so intuitive to us that glory in this world is something we seek for ourselves. We take. Jesus is seeking glory, but what distinguishes his glory is him moving outward in love. He's not taking as he goes to the cross. He's giving everything. It's what he's done throughout his life. He's not sought the praise of men. He's poured himself out for men and will do so to the point of death. And he's asking the father here, restore his glory, his majesty, his splendor, all of it, rightly his by reversing all he's done to empty himself in taking on flesh in the incarnation. Maybe you're a Muslim or you're sharing the gospel with a Muslim friend. You have to see what Jesus is unhesitatingly asking for. Glory that he understands is his by right, by his person, always been his. How will it be seen? by way of the cross. No other way. Why does he ask this of the Father? The Son may glorify the Father. The Father and the Son delight in glorying in the other. It's astonishing what we're seeing here, that the Father and the Son have not just always related in mutual love, but in glory from all eternity. He's saying to the Father, glorify me that I might glorify you right back. We know something of this in a father-son relationship. When any father watches their son or their daughter in an event, whether it's performance or sports or anything, fathers can't help be proud. Glory in their child, seeing them excel and to try and attempt and do. The same is true for the son or daughter, isn't it? They love to reflect glory, to see that glory given back to the father. Just last week in the United States, a major league baseball player was playing in his very, very first professional baseball game. And he went up to bat, first at bat ever, and he had a home run. Now, that almost never happens. So he's rounding the bases. I won't explain baseball, but you round bases and you finish at home plate. And as he's doing that, the camera cuts away to who? His father. In the crowd crying as he watched his son go around those bases and then to his son as he crossed home plate looking for and to his father as he accomplished this home run. You know why all of us understand this? Because this reality, this kind of relationship is eternally woven into the fabric of the universe. And that baseball player reflected something infinitely greater than perhaps He even understands. Jesus is asking for glory not to take away from, but to work toward the glory of the Father. It's the logic of Philippians 2. When Paul writes of the exaltation of Jesus, that at his name, every knee will bow and tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father and the Son share in glory. They never work apart from each other, but inseparably they work for the glory of the other. So the glory is not, Son's not taking glory from the Father, but giving glory. And the Son is going to the cross, which is the way to glory. Where are you looking for glory? Lasting glory only goes through the cross. If God's Son has prayed for and pursued glory in light of the cross, the glory of the world has been turned on its head. The emptiness of the glory of this world has been exposed. The church glories in the cross. Of all the institutions and organizations in the world, we alone are charged to proclaim and live under the cross. And what does the cross do? It frees us not to take, but to give, to lay our lives down, to give them away. And the cross is where the power is to live such a life. The cross is still the stumbling block over which anyone who would share in the Son's glory must stumble. The Son's glory. He prays for glory. Why? Because he has authority. That's the second thing we see about the son, the son's authority, the son's authority. Verse two, he's asking for glory because he's been given authority. That's the reason for the son's prayer for the father to glorify him. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's astonishing. The Father has given the Son authority over all flesh. Not future, since you will give him authority. Present, past, have. That before the world began, the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, creates the world, and the Father gives the Son authority. Every single person, whether any person acknowledges it or not. What we're learning about here is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, I think, probably, just arrived here in the UAE. Got off the plane. You got through passport control. That point you entered, if you did not have lost bags, you entered the borders of this kingdom. And whether you knew all of them or any of them or not, at that very moment, you were subject to the laws of this kingdom. It does not matter what nation you've come from. You are immediately under the authority of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan. And because you're now in Ras al-Khaimah, you're under the authority of His Highness Sheikh Saud bin Sakr al Qasimi. Their authority is. They have authority over you. This is how kingdoms work, it's how kings work. Jesus has a kingdom for the world began no matter what country you were born into, when you came into this world, you were under the authority of the Son. And I promise you, just as life will go better for you if you understand you're under the authority of the rulers here in the UAE, so if you understand whose authority you are un, uh, under in this world your life will be eternally better. The Old Testament prepares us for this. Doug read it from Daniel 7. This vision, son of man, being presented to the Ancient of Days, and in that throne room scene, we learn to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He is the child of Isaiah, whose government will increase and have no end. So for human beings, glory and authority is something we strive for. For Jesus, it's something given, his inherently. So if we're to see this world rightly, we would realize Jesus should have been met with praise and honor when he entered into his world. Although the world would have cheered him on as he did his work of salvation. He should have been praised for every step of obedience. He was taking, but with his glory and his authority veiled, he was rejected. He was opposed. He was hated until he was crucified. The son has authority, regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not. So I wonder if your eyes need to be raised this morning to a bigger view of Jesus Christ. He has authority over all people, that person, those people. This morning, before we go into this week, we need our minds informed by Scripture, not what we see with our eyes. We 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 go into a world and into a week in which many are not just ignorant of Christ's authority, but they consciously deny it. It It might be denied by kind respect. But it's denied. That doesn't change his authority. For your coworkers or your friends. Or for you. The inability of the world to see the authority of Christ does not diminish his authority. It merely reflects just how fallen we are as a human race. Maybe you deny his authority in the kindest of ways. You, you, you push him out. Of your life. You, you keep him at bay, even if it's subtle. Friends, who or what authority are you really under in your life? I think if some of you are honest, if you'll ask that question, you would just admit it's yourself. You refuse to give up authority over your life. And you're being account, uh, confronted with the reality that you're not the ultimate authority. That right now, you, you're accountable to Jesus Christ and his authority. Now consider what he could have done with his authority. He could have condemned the whole world and he still would have been good. But with all of this authority, he comes into the world and he lays his life down in the place of sinners. And yet he was raised from the dead to glory. And in doing this, he proved he had accomplished salvation. And so now this King, Jesus Christ, calls you to repent of your rebellion against him and his authority and to entrust yourself to him. And in doing that, you can receive and know what Jesus speaks of here, eternal life. Look at the second part of verse 2. There's a purpose in the Father giving the Son authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So notice this logic. He's given glory to give life to those given him. Beauty of God's glory. The son's glory radiates back to the glory of the father and radiates out in life for the good of his people. That's why the longer you stare and think about and meditate on the glory of God, the more you're amazed by its beauty and its brilliance. You just start to see the different angles of what is an infinitely perfect diamond. And you just stop and you behold and you praise. I think it's exactly why the Apostle Paul, after he had written 11 chapters of Romans in which he had worked out the plan of God and the gospel. It's outworking in the Christian life, in all of history, and he just stops and he praises God because he realizes that he's plumbing not just the depth of some plan, but of the glory of the God who reigns over the universe. The Son brings glory to the Father by giving eternal life to the people the Father has given him through the cross. And so here we learn the very purpose for which God the Father created the world. To give a bride, a people, to his Son. In creation, the Father gives a bride to the first Adam. In the cross, the Father gives a bride forever to the last Adam. And we learn here that the Son has his eyes dead set on his people. He's like the groom on the wedding day as he stands down front and beautiful woman after beautiful woman comes down the aisle as a bridesmaid. He looks past them all and he waits to see his bride. If you're trusting Christ, this is remarkable. You're a gift from the father to the son. The son is speaking of you as a gift to him from the father. Does that not change the way that you understand who you are between the father and before the father and the son? You you can't force your way into someone's family. Some of you might try, but you can't do it in an adoption. No child can obligate a family to take someone they don't want. At great cost, a family pursues a child. This is just a faint reflection of what's happening between the father and the son. There's no unwanted children in the father's family. Son has no unwanted brothers or sisters. He's known each one, loved each one by name from all eternity. And the father receives glory as the son goes into the world to get his own. Cross ensured that there would never be such a thing as a gotcha day that fails. All of this is not meant to make you proud. It should fill you with awe. It should fill your soul with a freedom that this world can't ever take away because this world could never give it to you. Think about the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit wanted you to hear this prayer. That the the triune God wants you to know that your salvation before it ever involved you was between his very person Praise God, it did involve us. The son is praying to give eternal life to all of those given to him. That's how he uses his authority, to give eternal life, verse three, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Quantity of life, yes, but more emphasized is quality of life. To know the eternal God, the father and the son. The only way to know God is through the Son. Not many paths up the mountain, but through one person. Not intellectually, personally, experientially, truly. It is also to be known by the Father and the Son, savingly, lovingly, eternally. This is eternal life. And this is the life that the Son possesses In himself, the Son gives the gift of life that He has in His person to His people. The God who gets glory by giving. So, this gift of eternal life, knowing God, the Father, and the Son, means we should know communion with the Father and the Son. And I think this is one of the great struggles for Christians this kind of bold prayer and knowing of the Father that marks the life of the Son should mark your life if you're in Christ. John Owen writes of this. See if this resonates with you. How few Christians are experimentally acquainted with the privilege of holding immediate immediate communion with the Father in love. What anxious, doubtful thoughts, thoughts do they look to him what fears, what questions they have of his goodwill and kindness. It is exceedingly acceptable to God, our Father, that we should hold this kind of communion with him in love, that he may be received into our souls as one full of love and tenderness and kindness toward us. Assure yourself, there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep up our hearts to him. As the eternal fountain of all grace, which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. Through eternal life, we share in the life and the love of the Son. And by overhearing this prayer, it means the Father means for you to know this life in love. It means that your first instinct about God the Father is to know deeply His love for you. And so to know great love. For him. When you think of God, is your immediate instinct doubt or trust? Is it confidence in his kindness or is it suspicion of his plans and his purposes? It's as you know his love for you, confident in it, that trust and obedience flow out, that your relationship is delight and not duty, that you see his commands not as burdensome but as good. The son was given authority over all, all human beings to give eternal life with the eternal God. The son's glory, the son's authority, and finally, the son's work. The son's work. So the father gives the son authority and he gives the son work. Verse four, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do so jesus understands that his life brought glory to the father by accomplishing work we've seen this in his life and teaching he does nothing apart from the father but does all that the father gives him salvation eternal life required work and jesus has done it he's not here just speaking of the work he's done but i i understand him to be speaking of the cross in the future as if it's accomplished it's the climax of his work the focal point where the glory of the father and the son are put on display it's amazing that even on the cross especially on the cross it's the glory of the father that the son has most in his view Now, in this church we preach, and by God's grace we would die for the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We are not saved by our works. Anything we do, but never let it be said that we are not saved by any works. We are saved by Jesus' work, his works. Jesus did not fail in the works. The father gave him, he obeyed all the way to the cross. And so is raised in power as the son of God in heaven. I think if you're not careful, it can be easy to look around at the religions of this world, maybe the great religions here and to think that their requirements are so great. I mean, they obligate you daily or monthly or yearly to reach paradise, to do this or that. And yet I hope that you see from the vantage point of scripture, from the vantage point of Jesus himself, that the works of every other religion are not too great. They are infinitely too small. They all fall short to obtain eternal life. What is required in your works is nothing short of perfection, fulfilling God's law at every point with perfect motives. And we've all failed. Only God, the son coming into the world accomplished and could accomplish the work the father gave him to do. You can keep all the requirements for prayers or fasting or giving or whatever list of good works you want to come up with and it won't be enough. Only one human being has accomplished all the works required for salvation. And we're called to trust in his work. And this is what brings glory to God. The only work that will be accepted on the final day is the work of the Son. The work of Jesus. And so how does that free you as you work? It frees you not to work for approval, but from approval. It frees you to succeed or to fail. Because you know what Jesus has said in this prayer, that you're not justified by your work. It frees you in all of your areas of work in your life. To the precious moms of this church, your work as a mom means, because of the finished work of Jesus, that's not what justifies you. It's not what makes you acceptable. Jesus' work makes you acceptable. Students, you don't have to keep judging yourself by your performance. You can get off that road. In Christ, God is not judging you in that way. He judges you by Jesus' performance. Kids, as you're about to begin another school year, your worth is not bound up in who does accept you and who doesn't. Because in Jesus Christ, God eternally accepts everyone who is his own. Professionals, your work is not your worth. Jesus' work is your worth. He accomplished it all, and this changes everything about time and eternity. Don't base your boast or trust in your work. Don't base your worth on it. Boast in the work and the worth of Jesus. The son is praying for glory because it was only by way of the cross that he could be glorified. Return to the Father to share in the glory that has been his from before the world, began. His prayer for glory is grounded in the authority given to him by the Father, but it comes by way of this work that the Father gave him. It's by accomplishing that that the Son is raised and ascends into heaven, triumphant as the God-man. So just as by way of the cross, eternal life was secured for sinful human beings, also by way of the cross, A real human being stands even now alive in heaven. The very beginning of this prayer, what we are being taken into is the depths of the greatest reality, greatest conversation in history. Information that is eternally valuable. To understand this is to know the deepest purposes of the world. It is to understand the depths and the heights and plans of the eternal father and the eternal son. It affects your life. It affects your death. The great Scottish reformer, John Knox, as he was dying, asked his wife to read him this chapter on his deathbed in 1572. As he was dying, he said that it was on this truth that he cast my first anchor. You can anchor your life, your death, your eternity in this prayer from the Son to the Father. By this prayer, you learn of the eternal life that the Son has come to bring and of the Son's glory toward which you and the whole universe are headed.